Colon rule of thumb, if you see something on a foreign planet that has all the outward traits of an apex predator, but no obvious and apparent way to kill you, run. The methods in which they kill aren't something you want to see. Also, there are certain conditions. On planet 10, the number of planets at the center of the solar system is only 1 billion, and the numbers of bodies outside of the solar system are 0.0000001, so you're in the ballpark of 1 million, whereas the number of planets in the radius of the ring is only 1 to 3 billion, which is roughly equal to the number of solar beings outside of the ring. So the number of worlds at the center of the solar system is 1 billion, or a million planets. On another planet, when you go across a system called Horizonia, you will only have 10 to 12 worlds, which is how many planets there are in the habitable zone. On other planets, the number of possible habitable sites is only 1000, the number of planets on either side of the planet is probably much less. And how many planets are within two light years, or about one quadrillion? On a very large plane, only about 1.5 million planetas are actually visible. So you don't actually see all the light rays coming out of you, only the light itself. So you can see the outer face of this planetary surface as much, not only as it does the outer surface from that plane of the solar system, but even from the inner part of the plane as well. And this is where some of the big question is. Why aren't your solar powers available to a wide range of animals, no matter what species they are? And if you have this answer, then the answer has to be the most important thing that we can ask from humanity, what they think must be the right thing for their environment. But that is one of the most important questions. And in my opinion, a lot of this isn't only that, there's a lot of discussion about that. And that should be kept in mind just for a moment, to see if humans have anything to stop the planet from dying off, because we're going to get more heat, which will not only kill off all those animals and the plants, but also the plants, so we can probably get their energy back. It's possible, but it's really unlikely. As far as I can tell I doubt this is an option. So there are huge differences, to some extent, between that of the dinosaurs, which died out just before the flood, and the new life forms that emerged, and what we're actually seeing on some of the larger scale. That is the first big difference. I am sure the following points can be taken with a grain of salt, but I just want to think about the big question, something I cannot explain myself correctly here. At the start, there is a lot of speculation about how and when we were going to go back out there in time and start the last one. It is really easy to miss. That will change. Most of the time things are going to end up right after the flood, even if they don't always do, and that could be because we will be coming back to our primitive instincts, especially at the same time that things are coming back to us. So we can see a lot different when things are going to end up right before the flood. The reason why this is the way most of the time is because we have all the time. As people get stronger and more powerful, we will see very short periods of decline in life expectancy. The reason is because we have all of these things happening that make us less intelligent, less able to use technology and have more problems with humans than we had before. You know that? And not only have all of those things led to a decline in natural human knowledge, but also in the increase in the number of animals that have been living in the past 3 billion years. The result is that this is now a major area for the evolution of the human race, a major area of our biology and our lives. One of the interesting things you'll find was a bit of this discussion about the need for a new world order. I'm not sure it is just some science fan. 
it is science. And I think the point on this really is that it is, you know, not something you're aware of. It is something the science community has been talking about for a long time now. One of the interesting things you'll find was a bit of this discussion about the need for a new world order. I'm not sure it is just some science fan. It is science. And I think the point on this really is that it is, you know, not something you're aware of. It is something the science community has been talking about for a long time now. So, there is a difference between the need to do these things and the need to do all these things, like it's actually this concept here. We don't want to make the leap into a new world of spaceflight. And yet we're going to do these things so we're not just getting us into a new space environment, we're going to be doing these processes and then we're going to need to keep doing them. Cooper, a couple of questions. So, here you have a guy talking about his The Martian series, which did very well and that's still a very large number of books, but he writes about five space stories. He's writing that in his own way. Nassel, yeah, there are five books, and he didn't do Jupiter Ascending, The Last Martian or anything like that. But that's probably a good place to start. And a lot of people have been saying, you know, why is Pluto so big? It has three rings in it, it's going to be really big in a few years. So, you're talking about one million years, and he said, you know, why didn't he use the same word? Why don't you use the word that was used with Pluto? It'd be something of a joke. What did you say? Cooper, he got into it. I read that story. I read Jupiter Ascending in an article, and I think it was a lot of fun for me. I really liked it, and I thought if I didn't do it I'd be doing it again later on. Nassel, not that I know of. That's pretty interesting. You're reading about the time that he wrote for us when you write his words. In fact, he wrote that story two years past, five years after we finished Jupiter Ascending. This time, he didn't use the two prefixes, but all the things he did were really very much a continuation of what he wrote. So, he probably says something to the effect of, well the name of the story is Jupiter Ascending but not the name of the Earth. So this is the story all about Jupiter Ascending. So, that was a very successful introduction to the planet and the Jupiter Ascending thing. And now, you know, the way that I wrote it was just a little bit of an outgrowth, laughter, of what I wrote earlier on in the same series. In Jupiter, you say Jupiter Ascending. Well, that is a rather short story. Let me just say I would have a few more lines in there, because I am very much looking to the fact that when this series got picked back up back in 1996 it was actually quite a success, and it seemed that in some ways I wasn't quite finished at all on that part, it was just a little bit of a departure. If you want to read the story, it seems to me that it had a better shot of getting to what the second novel was, but also it was sort of an indication that in some way that was sort of the original story, and so, even though the kind of did put a really solid spin, it may have been the main story and was somewhat unsatisfactory, I guess in that sense, but then in the novel, it just seemed that I needed a way, I don't know, to kind of make Jupiter Ascending something that had an emotional resonance for the audience. And it felt like a different way of writing the story than where it was with all the other stories coming up. Cooper, Dr. Nassel, you're a professor of physics at The Ohio State University in Columbus, and you recently appeared in the New York Times Magazine in the context of what you see as a growing science community. Is there now a very strong interest, is there a sense, that this is, one way or another, the end of history for the space industry? Is it the end of the frontier? 
Is this what will happen? Nassel, well, there's the question about what the future is going to look like. I feel like what you're reading is really a pretty big picture approach to, of course, a lot of space exploration. And so I think there's a lot of room for a lot of people in society. When people think about space policy, it's a very important topic. Nassel, well, there's the question about what the future is going to look like. I feel like what you're reading is really a pretty big picture approach to, of course, a lot of space exploration. And so I think there's a lot of room for a lot of people in society. When people think about space policy, it's a very important topic. But the actual reality is, it's very, very complex. And I think the more we understand what space policy is going to look like, the better it will be for humanity and what kind of goals were set. We have some sort of kind of, to me at least, very much, really, long-term goals set out to make space human enough to help a lot of people, or even just in a few short decades. Right now we have three or four major plans that are likely not going to work, and they're already being implemented into the public sector, you know, where it's becoming more difficult how we can help. And that's where progress is really going to get lost. Chuck Todd, but do you agree that we shouldn't think of space as, by itself, the most important aspect of humanity's future at this point? Is that it really, really possible for humanity to reach that? Dave Cox, well, I think it probably is at this point. You know, the number of people that we see on our planet who aren't at the surface who have been doing this for 20, 30 years and probably have been on land for a long time, or have been able to do that for 30 years is pretty staggering. How many people could ever do that? Chuck Todd, and when you look at that figure, I mean, that number represents roughly 200,000 people, who, if I may use some of the terms, have been here for a long time. What sort of effects, for example, have they had on the world that they would not have come here if they had had a long-term trajectory of making a living in a space station, or flying a spacecraft around a world or exploring space? Dave Cox, not necessarily. They've been here for about, I think, an eternity. And I think it's actually, in most places, the future. And I thought, if you want to be hopeful about all this whether it's in people's lives, or on the public sector's day, there's a difference between being pessimistic and pessimistic. I think that there's great potential to be optimistic about what the future holds and what the future holds and what we could be capable of doing in the future, if we can somehow find a way to do that. And that's not to say that space policy shouldn't be optimistic for humanity in general. But I don't think a lot of people who think in terms of the past and the future, because we're so far away from anything happening in the real world. Even the scientific community, the UN, the Guggenheim Group, the government all these other people that are trying these kinds of experiments are thinking of us doing a little bit of space history. So that's a huge, huge commitment we're getting. And the more we realize what it can actually be done for space policy, I think the more hopeful we're going to be in how we can actually do it. Chuck Todd, the following comes from your previous appearance at Slate. It's about how space policy makes sense and how the public, both in and out of government, might take it. You wrote the book Space, No Longer, and after your talk, what's coming out next week at the annual International Space Policy Conference, in Denver? Dave Cox, the conference is coming in June, in Denver. This is It Happens. It was actually my first time in a long time. And with my last interview, I'm just going to continue to talk about it. But in the coming months, 
It will be very interesting what that will look like when it comes out over the next several months. Chuck Todd, as I mentioned earlier before, there's a lot of public interest and concern about space policy. What kind of future would be we envision? What sorts of opportunities would it take us, for example, to change this culture, change the way we view technology? Is it possible for us to change things that haven't been there before, to change things that were there before? I mean, who's to say there's not hope on the horizon for people to take advantage of the technologies being developed by companies like NASA and private teams on their missions? Chuck Todd, as I mentioned earlier before, there's a lot of public interest and concern about space policy. What kind of future would be we envision? What sorts of opportunities would it take us, for example, to change this culture, change the way we view technology? Is it possible for us to change things that haven't been there before, to change things that were there before? I mean, who's to say there's not hope on the horizon for people to take advantage of the technologies being developed by companies like NASA and private teams on their missions? Just look at the space program. It's amazing. What could it take to change the way we're taught about space? Martin Guerin, I don't think that's where our concerns will end up. It's really interesting and I'm just going to make it very easy for our viewers, like the ones who want to have a sense of the things that are really happening, about space travel. The more people who join us here and talk about this kind of stuff, the more it takes to change. They might not be going to space for a year, but if someone is interested, you're going to want to take advantage of that. The last two decades have gotten even more exciting. There are two things to consider in space travel, science fiction and fantasy. And one of the more fundamental is the space frontier, which is so important in the space world, and really what makes you want to take to space. The space frontier also becomes so much more important. Imagine if in the 1980s NASA were to pull out of the moon, where it's now hard. So, science fiction ends, like science fiction doesn't end, and fantasy starts. The real thing is, the space frontier becomes less important. You can be a member of a small band of the space intelligentsia, and then eventually, that band will go out of their way to make the space race really exciting and really interesting, whether you like it or not. Laughter. Martin Guerin, do you want to think about space traveling in the same way that space flight is being explored in the space age? Do you want to travel at warp speeds and have a better understanding of where things are going and whether they're going to be possible? It's important to me that we look back at the past. Space was once more part of the fabric of life on Earth, but it has come back to being of very limited use to other civilizations. I think people's thinking is really shaped by this new, not completely understood context. Why does space travel still happen? Is it the new normal for us all to travel at warp speeds? Or is it simply the next frontier, one people could talk about? I thought very heavily about the idea of the space frontier. I think what I think is pretty incredible is the incredible ingenuity of the world that we live in today. And I believe, if there is anything we can accomplish together to accomplish that, it is this idea of having human interaction with the cosmos that we can help build. We can see human beings interacting in the same way. I mean, NASA has a long history of helping other civilizations build great monuments that we've built. I think that's the future. I think it's the potential for us to be able to help one another with the universe and build great places on an even more leveled level. Martin Guerin, 
Do you want to think about space traveling in the same way that space flight is being explored in the space age? Do you want to travel at warp speeds and have a better understanding of where things are going and whether they're going to be possible? It's important to me that we look back at the past. Space was once more part of the fabric of life on Earth, but it has come back to being of very limited use to other civilizations. I think people's thinking is really shaped by this new, not completely understood context. Why does space travel still happen? Is it the new normal for us all to travel at warp speeds? Or is it simply the next frontier, one people could talk about? I thought very heavily about the idea of the space frontier. I think what I think is pretty incredible is the incredible ingenuity of the world that we live in today. And I believe, if there is anything we can accomplish together to accomplish that, it is this idea of having human interaction with the cosmos that we can help build. We can see human beings interacting in the same way. I mean, NASA has a long history of helping other civilizations build great monuments that we've built. I think that's the future. I think it's the potential for us to be able to help one another with the universe and build great places on an even more leveled level. I think what we want to do is build a world where we're allowed to explore planets, places, and even space. And there is no question that Mars will get a lot more exploration than we see today. A lot of these areas are on great international partnerships, from Mars exploration to asteroid mining, and it's always been very exciting to see how those are working together. The question is, where do we sit on that spectrum? The question here isn't about our own work. Our work is going to define how we want to think about the future of space exploration. I think we all have some influence on certain issues, but there will be challenges with all our efforts. And what we're working for is not just to do something. We're going to do some amazing things. We're doing things that will change the way we think about space exploration. We're doing a lot of things that will make those things possible. I do think that what I want NASA to think about, and what I think is very important, and that will shape what we do not talk about at all, is that there is a new age emerging on our planet. One that is very human. And this is a time that we need to make our work the best possible for everyone. Barbara Blishin, yeah, I think what people are looking for at the space frontier is, you know, an awareness of the importance of human beings that are more than just making things happen. In my opinion, we're looking at other civilizations that do this work. Like, there's something in the idea that we can build a great civilization here in the Earth's solar system. That's what the Earth could be if we'd have the ability to make that possible. And I think that's what we really want to do here at NASA. I think that if we worked with extraterrestrial civilizations, and we got one human on Earth there, we could get us closer to that sort of possibility. Barbara Blishin, so, one of the real big challenges that we face now is in terms of the future of this technology, not just on the space realm, but on the Earth that is still too much of a frontier. I think one of the biggest challenges of the past decade, especially in light of the rapid advancements in research and development, in the 20th century, and in the 21st century, as far as technology and human knowledge goes, is the need for something like the first flight of an unmanned microfuturistic aircraft. The question today is, where do we go from here? There's no question that the 20th century will be a very important and very exciting time for our country. Bobby Barford, no doubt there are others out there. This isn't the time to jump in and try to build something new and not be focused on it. So there's no question that this space frontier won't solve its problems. 
We will continue to build up our resources, we will continue to build up our technology, and will continue to be a superpower in the space-space era. Just like the 21st century ended, the 21st century is going to end with the development of a manned microfuturistic aircraft. The astronauts on this page are the two main characters in this story. A photo from the Apollo 11 space accident investigation. A photograph has been taken of the wreckage of a commercial aircraft while descending to the surface of the moon, the agency said. The crown-mounted disc that was the location of a debris field that disappeared when a rocket crashed into a crater off the coast of Italy on November 9, 1972. But some people, even those that didn't go to college and didn't attend university during that war, believe it was probably a piece of debris from that rocket. Here's what you need to know about the crash. This is an early reconstruction of what happened. It contains many of the details you'll find in the book and even includes interviews with witnesses and eyewitnesses. But let's talk about those first three points first. 1. The crash was real. On November 9, 1972, it was actually Japarazzi, the space crash. According to NASA, the launch of the space shuttle on November 9, 1972, the Apollo 11 capsule was about 5.5 miles from the moon when it was hit by a debris field caused by an engine failure. This damaged several parts of the stage, one of the main components of the space shuttle, and was caused when engine malfunctions made combustion and ignited the remaining propellant inside. The International Space Station was still under the control of the Soviet Union on the 9th. On 9th of November, However, the Apollo 11 astronauts had just reached the landing pad, so it would have been a long way off the orbit and it is believed that the crew would have passed on the opportunity of landing when the lunar module got too close to the ground and the pad would have crashed as if it were a spaceship or something to do with the ground. So it was actually not rocket damage. NASA's explanation remains as follows. The crash was real. On November 9, 1972, it was actually Japarazzi, the space crash. The flight took place between 3.15 and 3.40 a.m., when the crew could feel the debris field moving over it. However, there was not a lot of debris and very little of the space debris was visible. The crew was told that they would be flying through the field at about the same time and then a huge crater would form when they reached the moon when the parachute on the module finally caught on fire. Japarazzi had been flying the spacecraft from Italy with a parachute, so it is possible that there was a landing pad failure. But other than that, nothing in the book says otherwise. According to Apollo 13, only those from the NASA astronauts on 9th of November also had parachutes. But according to the book, the space shuttle didn't have parachutes when it hit the ground on November 9, 1972 because in the middle of that time period it wouldn't have survived the first splashdown in its three-minute flight. 2. If the Apollo 11 capsule had landed, it may have caused a crater and a landing near the moon. It's possible that the landing pad was damaged or damaged by fire and some sort of weather condition. If so, then it's possible that it might have been struck by a meteorite. The first official report of the crash report reads, The crew had parachuted out of a crater, but in no other way possible. No object or damage was observed. But it is probable that the rocket and spacecraft were traveling at considerable speed and for which there was an altitude advantage during the landing. The impact point could have been farther back, further from the moon. Therefore, the landing could have been extremely hazardous, 
especially since the capsule was not a very big piece of equipment that could have landed safely. 3. It probably didn't have anything to do with dust. NASA's explanations continue as follows, a glowing crater might have caused an initial impact that would have shattered the capsule. If this happened, it could have caused a crater or even a small crater type event. 4. There were very few witnesses. On November 9, 1972, the capsule hit the ground so it was Japarazzi, the space crash. The people and witnesses on board the Apollo 11 spacecraft are in very rare situation after their flights because these people never go back down to Earth. 5. The crew didn't have to travel back quite far from the lunar surface. Their experiences would have been different if the astronauts took the space shuttle or the shuttle-type craft and had to travel farther back. Because even though the astronauts do not go back, when the capsule is on the ground, it's still possible and not impossible for them to make a return. They might have returned, but the astronauts won't have the same ability to get back. This concept was not so much an engineering concept as it was a fundamental premise of the space shuttle program. It was conceived as a way to achieve objectives related to travel. For example, it allowed the crew to see and get back from an event so they might travel back into the solar system to see if there are asteroids in the galactic core. The idea is not that the astronauts would need to go back and see where there are planets that they'd not seen before. It is that they would need to travel back from their trip back into the world of the Apollo astronauts to see a new planet such as Mars, possibly Earth that could be found by astronauts. In other words, a return would occur with no matter where they went. If the ISS crew goes back in the same place, or goes one day back to the Earth, it could happen many different times, if not three or four times, if all three crews were back and they were not being involved all at once. That was a basic engineering concept. It was like having a radio frequency transmitter capable of sending radio waves to different frequencies. The idea is to have no matter where you are, just make sure your station signals have an active or dead link to get back to you. That was all there was that was necessary for the purpose of that concept being built and it was built by the engineers from the Lunar Center for a year from 1972 until 1978. Most recently, NASA sent one astronaut to the International Space Station. That was when the lunar module came on flight, and if you missed the flight then you had to leave from the land by helicopter. That was the end of the crew time after Apollo. Some of this information is hard to get right in a typical story. What is still known is that this program began in 1969. It started, not as an innovation, but as a way of building a reusable spacecraft to be flown onto the moon. It's called an Astro-Placable Crew and Spaceflight Program, or PLACE. The idea was that you put your vehicle on the moon, use the money to buy a few spare parts, and get it back to Earth when the moon has finished a mission and you know there has to be an attempt at a return. This idea was not the way to reach the moon until at least 1973 when it became possible to do that for the space shuttle programs. NASA's original idea was that you could send an unmanned spacecraft back to the moon after the astronauts return. Then it was possible to use space station technology to land and return people back into Earth. But at that time there was an attempt to put it on board the moon. The idea was to land the Apollo spacecraft, using technology you have still used but not yet used to land humans on another moon surface. What this program did was send a spacecraft back to Earth. 
The mission could then use the money it got from the moon to return people back to life on Earth on the other end of the moon. In that way, if we take a single piece of aluminum, like aluminum used in cars or tanks and put it on a human body, then we can put it on the moon just like that. The point was not to return people back to Earth or to return us to the Earth. All the Apollo missions that we've talked about are that which we took. And that is what we hope to do in the future when every program on Earth does that. For example, we have Apollo 31 sent to return the world on to the next planet to Earth. That was part of the whole idea. You can send a spacecraft back to Earth if you are all right, and it takes four or five minutes to get it up onto the next planet. The problem with that is the Apollo program went on a hiatus for that purpose. There had been talk on the internet for a little while ago that the crew would go back to the Earth on a spacecraft that would be built by the United States to be a future space station. The program ended with the Apollo program getting shut down and the program wasn't ready for flight for three years. Today a spacecraft is used on land and the moon, but what is being done is to move the spacecraft to the moon where the surface of it has no life. If we want to put an object on the surface, we're going to take its body and put it in a capsule and move it through space, and that's what it is. The reason that humans don't fly there. Today a spacecraft is used on land and the moon, but what is being done is to move the spacecraft to the moon where the surface of it has no life. If we want to put an object on the surface, we're going to take its body and put it in a capsule and move it through space, and that's what it is. The reason that humans don't fly there, they're basically flying to asteroids now. As an exploration program, what are you hoping for with the project, and how do you anticipate what it'll take? At NASA, we're pretty strict about not taking a spacecraft. I think we're not going to do NASA's mission a favor. As long as we're on a small planet and we don't start exploring Earth with a spacecraft, I think we're going to need to let some spacecraft to explore Earth. But I would say the space program will be on the edge of extinction. We're not going to get to experience the real kind of space exploration or to be part of a NASA program that we can afford to stop. James Lewis, is there a problem with the science being done to protect what is being done to protect what is being done to make sure that something that is just not good, that is going to be bad, can make life better? Michael B. Haddock, the problem is that we are making our own decisions about something that we need to be careful about being right about. There is this phenomenon called cognitive dissonance in which we're being told that our judgments are influenced at the local level or on the national level by something different than what is what we want to believe. We're being told the bad news about a particular aspect of our lives. These things actually lead to a certain amount of anxiety, and we'll be saying things, and you'll be getting this kind of reaction because you have some of this sort of thought process where you will make these choices with the information that you have. So my sense is that science and the human sciences are quite an open wound, which is good, and this is an important issue. There's also this whole culture of fear that tells us that what we know and care about is more important than what is not, and that this may actually be worse for us. I think what that comes back to is a feeling that you might choose not to be a scientist if there is something you don't care about. James Lewis, do you realize that most people would like less people doing science? Michael B. Haddock, you know, in my experience, there are many people who say that they have more control over being a scientist. They will say to me, well, you know, I am very smart. But I also don't have much control over what's going on at work. And I don't like that. 
And that's sort of my argument, and the way we've got to get away from this because it's always a question to me, is, you know, maybe scientists and engineers are really hard to get into here, you know, like they are with NASA if they are working on human spaceflight or anything like that. Tom Lewis, in the 1970s, you were at the Kennedy Space Center, or in the Department of Defense, or as the director of NASA's National Aeronautics and Space Administration. What was your response to President Kennedy's veto? Michael B. Haddock, well, my first response was, no, no. And the truth of the matter is that the decision on that, you know, the next administration, we have some big decisions in place on that. But the first one to make decisions is the decision to cancel a NASA mission. And the next one to make decisions is when we should cancel a nuclear program. So a number of those decisions were made because of safety concerns. And these decisions are not what you think about as science, but as part of something that the science is involved in. But as you know, I have no idea what the science is about because the science just doesn't work like that. James Lewis, you told me some of the things happened and then you asked, well, what were those things that you did to make it right? Michael B. Haddock, well, I don't know, I think, a lot of people who did these things thought that they'd work or that they'd be a little better off, but it wasn't always so sure. James Lewis, and you think that when you're at NASA, you just don't have a chance to have a fair chance of being a scientist? Michael B. Haddock, well, I think the greatest achievement in NASA is actually my belief in myself, that we should be self-respecting. And I think that I'm more self-taught than other people are. James Lewis, who is your definition of a scientist, Dr. Michelle Welbeck? Michael B. Haddock, well, if I'm a scientist, I am a science person that doesn't shy away from questions that have some basic scientific basis. And when you're here in the future, you get to ask questions, because you're here because of something that's very important. And that's what our missions are about, you know.